You all have heard me talk many times about my wife here on the show. You might recall that she's a yoga teacher, and I wanted to let you know that she is starting her own streaming service called Yoga with Ashlyn, A-I-S-L-I-N-N. That's how you spell it. And if you enjoy our meticulous, data-oriented approach here on Dunked On, either you or a significant other will find this to be the best streaming service there is for yoga. Unlike apparently a lot of teachers, she spends about an hour planning the sequence for each class. Why is that important? Well, it helps you get the most out of every second that you're on the mat, whether it's one of her quick 10-minute refresh classes or one of her super hardcore inversion labs. This detailed sequencing makes all the difference whether you're looking for injury prevention, getting into that really hard pose you haven't been able to master, or just getting your mind right at the end of a really hard day. She's got over 130 classes, and that library is growing at one to two classes per week. She'll even take requests from members on new classes that they like. You can search by poses, by body part if you're feeling something is tight. She's really built an impressive platform. And whether you want to get into yoga more yourself or you know someone who is really into yoga and is looking for a way to get a lot better, check out Yoga with Ashlyn. There's a free seven-day trial. You can either go to yogawithashlyn.com or there's a link to her service in the description of this podcast. That's yogawithashlyn.com, A-I-S-L-I-N-N, or just click the link in the podcast description. All right, Danny, another day, another fun night of action. This series between the Jazz and the Nuggets. Yes, it's not the highest level of defense in the world, but holy crap, is this an exciting series. It's just some of the performances, the individual games, the plays that are being made in this series. It's been awesome. It really has been. And I think the place to start in the game that Denver ended up winning 117 to 107 is with Jamal Murray's second half. These are second half only stats. Played 20, he played 24 minutes, so he played the entire time, which is also incredible. That's actually hilariously listed on um, on NBA stats as 24-01, just because it's like, wasn't quite enough. Um, <laughs> 33 points, 14 of 18 from the field, 3 of 4 from 3, 2 of 2 from the line. Also, 5 assists, no turnovers, and plus 19 as they came back. The Jazz had a had a comfortable margin it felt like to me i kind of thought i saw where yeah, the game was they're up 15 they're up eight it looked like porter came in they got a couple of quick buckets they're up uh by 12 halfway through the third it looked like it was that was gonna be it yeah and and for murray it was a mix of i mean his jump shot was absolutely ridiculous but also got to the lane i talked about the free throws but also five of five in the restricted area got to do a couple of floaters as well and we haven't seen great jamal murray all of the time in this series but we have seen a lot of it and i think that has to be very encouraging for nuggets fans yeah and they found a way to quell him in games two and three by putting royce o'neill on him and he it looked like he was going to be one of these game on game off type of things after his ridiculous performance in game four which the jazz overcame but no he played all 24 minutes for the second straight second half and plus 20 in this one 42 points overall eight assists as well which was more than he'd been getting before and it was just a a ridiculous performance by him and the nuggets both teams continue to shoot absolute lights out from three i mean this has got to be maybe the highest combined three-point percentage by like any two teams in a playoff series i I mean i haven't looked that up but i would guess that that it would be up there uh and certainly both in in terms of number of combined makes as well the nuggets don't get a ton up but they've been like over 40 percent it seems like pretty much every game in this series and same for the jazz so it's uh it really was jamal murray getting hot and bringing them back i mean that 14 of 18 that you said just in the second half and i mean the free throw line yeah only four of four like he doesn't get to the line a ton he's just doing it by flat out making shots and it's it's great to see this is a low free throw series that's another reason why it's been pretty entertaining both team shots 16 free throws in this game so not a ton of stoppages just extremely enjoyable basketball but what really got them back into it was for the first time in this entire series they actually defended they actually stopped utah and in the third quarter they had Jokic hanging back towards the rim he actually made a couple of plays at the rim in the fourth quarter they started bringing him out particularly on donovan mitchell pick and rolls and getting the ball out of his hands and i thought really what was even bigger than Jokic, who gave a better effort was 
the guys on the perimeter actually like just sticking with their man a little bit better forcing them into some misses particularly from floater range where the jazz struggled mightily and they couldn't really get all the way to the rim very well so at one point they were seven out of 25 from floater range and so a lot of that was the nuggets guards and they do have some length on the perimeter really competing staying with their man and not just letting you know a jordan clarkson walk into whatever he sh- shot he wanted over monty morris five feet from the basket just outside the restricted area yeah and it was also interesting that mike malone really leaned heavily on michael porter jr and pj dozier in that second half michael porter jr this was not a perfect defensive game for him but i thought there were definitely some better moments there was the one where he stood pat on jordan clarkson and got the block it helps that he is significantly larger than jordan clarkson but a good job of staying staying down and i i don't think you know like dozier was plus 20 in that second half i didn't think that it was necessarily him being dominant but he was pretty consistent and i thought that that did help he made a couple of plays defensively i mean it really though honestly it kind of didn't matter who those other guys were uh a lot it was just jamal Murray, but they did make an adjustment that really really helped them and that was to start setting the screen with the four man it was who was guarded either by joe ingles or george niang and the jazz did not want to switch that because murray had completely torched joe ingles and would do the same most likely to niang particularly if you then set the you know do a one four five pick and roll and then set the screen afterwards uh with your big man with a guy who's not as good at getting over the screen and so the jazz were in like sort of a conventional pick and roll coverage but in similar fashion to what we see in the okc series murray was able to get going downhill and then attack either Ingles or Niang like they were a big man and they looked like they were just standing in cement and then Murray you know he was able to get to the rim Jokic did a nice job of sealing off Gobert on a couple of occasions down there uh, or they were able to get into the mid-range and really get wide open and he was hitting everything in that second half so that was a great adjustment to kind of keep Gobert out of the action now I think the Jazz could have adjusted to that a little bit better either by blitzing Murray and getting it out of his hands and saying all right you know Paul Millsap if you want to go make a, a play on the roll four on three going at Rudy Gobert go ahead or if you want to or they could have done some of the similar stuff that they were doing before of bringing another guy into the action um the other thing that helped was that Jokic hit five out of five threes in the first quarter and so he was shooting well enough that I think normally they wouldn't want to do that because Gobert is right under the hoop then and you'd want to get him away in that pick and pop action but Jokic kind of just spacing out particularly the corners uh just was enough to draw Gobert away and, and allow Murray to get to the rim on a few of those including by the way the 360 layup yeah like usually guys do that just because like they're kind of stuff like he i think he did it around gobert too it was an unbelievable move i want to go back to Jokic's first quarter because i thought that that you had posited at the beginning of the series that that was a way that the nuggets could create an advantage and i thought that you you saw those residual effects even though Jokic didn't have you know the greatest statistical game after that so let's go through the basics though Jokic scored 21 points in the first quarter played the whole thing and only took one shot in the restricted area two shots in the paint no free throws it was basically 15 of his 21 were on straight up three-point jump shots and made all five of those and that's a big part of why the Nuggets were seven of 11 though they only led by one point because Utah scored 32 that's what kind of felt like it was the you know a different version of the same song but as you said I thought that that had lingering effects even though Jokic only ended the game with 31 only 31 but when you have 21 in the first quarter it feels like an only to an extent but he played that I thought that I thought that that helped the offense the entire night yeah although you know I I still think that they managed to shut down Jokic pretty well as much as he can be I mean he's shot it way better in this series than expected uh but you know he had two buckets in the paint all game and he also had four assists eventually a couple of those were just quick handoffs to Murray and and I think he had one free throw assist where they were able to get some cuts uh, against smaller guys cutting into the lane but and that's something that I actually think they haven't exploited enough is a Jeremy Grant coming off a screen and you know just cutting but also just being bigger than someone like Jordan Clarkson uh you know, so that's and with Jokic's passing ability and the way he was shooting it I thought they sh- really should have gone to stuff like that more you know similar action to like what the Cavs used to run the Lakers will run it now some with LeBron at the elbow and then they would have a shooter screen for Kevin Love to get into the post out of the corner like those sorts of actions where the guy's just so big that even if you help out with a guard you're just he's so large that he's just going to get like really good position they haven't really done anything like that this series 
but yeah Jokic is usually the engine of their offense he gets a ton of assists and he just hasn't been able to do that because they haven't drawn any help at all so he's been reduced to a pick and pop shooter and he's actually been way better in that role than you could have expected because he only shot like 30 percent from three this year but that's that's not what makes the Nuggets great um and credit to Jamal Murray for the third time in this series for basically being the Denver offense uh, again and no matter how this series turns out I still think the Jazz are substantial favorites particularly given the fact that a game seven would be is a neutral game but the growth of Jamal Murray in the series against you know not the greatest defenders in the world uh, has been a positive for the Nuggets he has actually looked like a max player in the series really for the first time I would say in his career and also we saw in game five Royce O'Neal kind of going off the rails a little bit there was that oh one, man there was that sequence it, it was about midway through the fourth quarter I think it was a little bit before midway where Jamal Murray made a three and he was still pissed off about that and then sets a fantastically illegal screen oh, and then is man. and then is pissed off that they called it it's like dude you just body checked a guy while you were moving forward and like he hollinger called it the yips he was just off he just i don't i don't know exactly yeah. what it was and we've we've talked a lot we praised race o'neill for his skill development over the years and he has a really tough assignment in this series but o'neill going off the rails forced utah into some tougher assignments because Ingles couldn't do anything and so that put a lot on donovan mitchell and it i mean especially when you consider the workload that mitchell has on the offensive end including that ridiculous dunk that he had um i, I think that's a lot to ask and jamal murray didn't really care who was on him yeah i thought mitchell actually did better than their other guys Agreed. you know and, and once O'Neal got his fifth foul they had to take him off of, of Murray and he wasn't doing a great job on him on him anyway and O'Neal also had just like a terrible travel when he was wide open for a three and like tried to pass fake and like pass faked himself off balance and traveled like he should have just taken the three so yeah he he had a struggle in the fourth and Mitchell I thought it was really fascinating I tweeted about it during the game that Donovan Mitchell you and I saw it in person at the Utah Summer League how he was really a defensive guard when he was drafted and then he immediately took on such an offensive responsibility that his defense has actually been kind of a disappointment to me and you know for example when he has had to guard James Harden that that was always a disaster in those Houston series but I thought he had a couple of good possessions getting over screens but then he got like visibly tired for offense a, a couple of times going into timeouts and then Murray hit like one big shot at him where he just used his size advantage to knock him backwards and get a, a very good look and it really was you know, it was tied at basically 100 and Jamal Murray had a personal 7-0 run to essentially give them the winning margin uh with about three minutes or so left in the fourth with just a lot of it really got back to just iso mid-rangers at the end he was just waving everyone away and going at it it was pretty fantastic and also, while at a certain point it became Utah trying to get it all back in one shot, Denver did play better defense down the stretch too. They forced a couple of misses, got a couple got a couple of turnovers, and I thought that made a huge difference in terms of their confidence moving forward as well. Yeah, we'll see. I I couldn't really point to a ton that they did strategically other than just individual <laughs> guys doing a better job. I mean, and that's... Uh, yeah. Other than getting Royce O'Neal, one of the single worst record scratches in modern history. Yeah. That was I mean, them. they just, they just had O'Neal. a higher energy level. You know, they weren't... Yeah. Uh, yeah, they were moving around. They were making some more hustle plays. They weren't just giving up and getting dejected when they got beat. They were continuing to compete. Guys were getting over screens a, a little bit better than they had been. You know, I thought Jeremy Grant had a much better defensive game than he's been having, where he's kind of has been, uh, you know, he's really more of a power forward. Uh, and so he's not as used to getting over screens. I think he did a better job of that. Another thing on the other end that I thought was big was Utah and particularly O'Neal got called for a bunch of fouls trying to get over screens themselves. And so yes. once you had that constraint, that meant that Murray was able to get going a lot more with guys being afraid of they're you're going to get called for another foul. Like the, those kind of, you know, a foul or two getting over a screen, that can really have a deterrent effect that lasts for a long time when you know that they're calling that action tightly. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And Denver defending better and Jamal Murray, of course, being incredible again, does make me feel like they have more and winning game five, like they have more of a chance to win the series. But I don't know that it really changed the paradigm for me. I don't think that this that they turned over New Leaf, that they unlocked something dramatic, though, if they this was a reminder that if they compete they can't execute at least a little bit defensively worth noting that utah still put up a like a 113 offensive rating and that includes some misses towards the end but so uh, yeah i mean remember two neutral site games i think the jazz are meaningful favorites to win the series but i'm more excited about it now and we get more games of it and it's been pretty damn fun 
Yeah, so Millsap didn't close, as you mentioned. Monte Morris didn't close. I don't, wouldn't imagine Millsap's going anywhere in the starting lineup, to be sure. And, you know, Porter Jr. played 34 minutes. They're going to go back to him. Mean, he did still get torched defensively most of the way. And they, it's not like they were going to him a ton. It just uh there was just more help for porter behind the play and they, they definitely didn't do a great job uh when he was out there and, and he was a big problem for them in the third but they managed to get by that so i'm uh i really don't know the answer to whether this is going to continue for denver or whether they found something my hunch is that they probably haven't but they are at least like they're doing something now they're at least not giving up layups and dunks at the rim like they were in game three and the other question will be are they going to switch up with is Jokic going to be way back are they going to put him out on the floor again more like they went back to later being pretty aggressive you know particularly on plays I think on plays where O'Neal is the screener if you're putting Porter on him I would try and trap that although I don't know if Porter can even execute that but maybe try that a little bit and um, you know, just more Jamal Murray, I guess, right? Like that, that's uh, and so maybe this will morph into a little bit more of a defensive series. The Jazz still at a one thirty offensive rating in the first half, but uh, in the second half, uh, they definitely struggled. They only had forty four points, which uh, in this series is basically like the two thousand four Detroit Indiana <laughs> relative to what it's been. Do you have anything else on this series, or do you want to move on? That's all I had. Yeah, let's talk about Clippers Dallas in just a second here. I've been working with Masterclass now for probably four years, ever since Steph Curry's class on shooting and ball handling came out. And I still find more classes that I'm enjoying. My wife and I have actually been sitting down together and watching Gordon Ramsay's class and learning a ton about cooking technique that basically we're applying right away. More her than me, if we're being honest, because it is the NBA playoffs after all. I don't have a ton of time for cooking right now. But I'm just continually wowed by the quality of Masterclass just even when they're filming him doing the class they've got like four different cameras there they'll show you an overhead view above him of what he's doing in the pan or the bowl it's really just remarkable and really whatever your interest is and however deep you want to go into it whether you want to just watch the videos whether you want to work through the downloadable materials as well and you can watch it on ios android we're casting it to our chromecast super easy the way to get started with them and get unlimited access to every master class and 15 percent off an annual membership is to go to masterclass.com slash capspace easy to remember because we talk about it all the time here on the program that's masterclass.com slash capspace for 15 percent off masterclass don't forget that slash capspace to let them know that you came from us it was about a year ago now that there was that massive shortage of toilet paper. Remember that? Even still, it, it seems like you can't get as much as you might want to at the store. And that shed some light for me on the idea that toilet paper is not very environmentally friendly either. Over 27,000 trees are cut down each day to make toilet paper. And that's why now I use Real. It's 100% bamboo toilet paper. Bamboo grows faster than trees. It doesn't need to be replanted. And it's just a more sustainable material uh, overall. It's three-ply, making it both soft and strong. Even the tape is plastic-free, as, of course, is the rest of their packaging. And every real purchase helps fund access to clean toilets for the 2.4 billion people who currently have to defecate outside so it's good for you it's good for the environment it gets sent right to your house which is awesome with free shipping so you don't have to take up 95 percent of the room in your shopping cart just with toilet paper no reason not to give it a try listeners of dunked on get 10 percent off their first order with the promo code capspace easy to remember that because we talk about it all the time around the program visit realpaper.com r-e-e-l realpaper.com and use that capspace code to get 10 percent off don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us Okay, welcome back. We're going to talk Clippers Dallas. Of course, if you'd prefer not to have ad breaks uh, as of September 8th, you will be able to do that. We will be four days a week subscription, maybe even more than that, because we now have the freedom where we're, we're not limited by advertisers to five episodes a week. We can do quick little episodes, uh, gamers on a Friday like we've done. We can do early releases. We're definitely going to have an early release actually on Saturday night this week for subscribers. And Anthony Slater actually joined me today to do about just a 20-minute quick hitter talking about Damian Lillard versus Steph Curry since he's covered it. Damian Lillard in this series with the Lakers and you know seeing him a bunch in the playoffs over the years covering the Warriors and addressing some of the social media comparisons that we've seen between the two and uh with the thesis that Damian Lillard still is not uh, Steph Curry despite the fact that he's had some of these crazy runs so that, that was a really interesting conversation to have again just a quick 
I was feeling eight Slater. Uh, you got 15 minutes. Let's talk right now. And so I was able to just do a quick pod. So it's great to have that freedom. It's uh, dunkedon.supportingcast.fm is your link to do that. And you can get special founder pricing until we go monthly on September 8th. And also, if you are someone who's in difficult financial circumstances, send us an email. Instructions on how to do that are in the tweet that's pinned to the top of, of my profile when I wrote a letter about why it is that we're doing this and that pricing the special difficult circumstances pricing will be available as of september 8th as well but you can just send us an email tell us a couple sentences about your situation and also another nice thing about that subscription service is you're already subscribed so we don't have anything to promote on there anymore uh, so you won't have to listen to me promote anything now sadly there is not much to promote about this dallas clippers game it was a complete evisceration not quite from the opening tip but pretty close and it, it has gone final now 154 four to 111 the clippers put up a buck 50 paul george scored 35 points in this game in 25 minutes that was more points than he scored in games two through four he looked like himself offensively 12 of 18 from the field four of eight from three seven to seven from the line and during the competitive portion of the game, both PG and Kawhi Leonard looked great. And we've spent a lot of time, justifiably so, talking about the Clippers' defense and their limitations there. And it is worth remembering, now, this is kind of beyond their fastball. This is this is something else. But when those guys are on it, they're, I mean, Kawhi is unperturbable, and that's a big problem for Dallas. PG can hit shots. And also guys like Ledger Shamit looked better. There was a stretch where Reggie Jackson was hitting a bunch of shots. And Dallas just couldn't keep up. No, they couldn't. It looked early on, and again, worth noting, Kristaps Porzingis was not a late scratch, but uh, an early scratch uh, with that continued right knee soreness that uh, becomes increasingly concerning. But the Mavs jump out to a 16-9 lead, and they're scoring just as easily. They're getting their open threes. Luka gets a floater. They had eight points on their first three possessions. You're like, okay, maybe this is going to be, yeah, George looks good. Clippers are scoring well, but you know the this Mavs offense is still the, the number one offense that they've been. But I really thought this was a defensive win for the Clippers, despite the offensive fireworks that presumably nobody could have kept up with, not even Dallas, if they'd been running well. But they're not messing around really with Marcus Morris on Luka anymore. It was Paul George to start the game, and it was Leonard for a lot of the game, as it was down the end of game four. Those guys took on the assignment. And then another couple of adjustments. Number one, Avicii Zubac was out there much more. And yeah, he was only plus 10, but I thought that he really barricaded the rim against Luka. And he is, it is very clear Luka is just is not comfortable getting those drives and finishes right at the basket against him. And then when you also throw in going to the floater game well if he's got George or Leonard right on his back on the floater and he can't get all the way to the rim you know now it starts to actually look a little bit difficult for him for the first time he 22 points 6 of 17 did get to the foul line a lot they played him 31 minutes but only four assists too you know they're actually had some semblance of being able to play pick and roll two on two and then another thing that they did that I thought worked really well was actually getting Zubac who has surprising mobility way out on the floor and getting Luca really going backwards with double teams far from the basket. And the Mavs adjusted to that a little bit. The adjustment there is usually to set the screen closer to the basket so you can get the guy rolling to the hoop more easily. But for a while, they really had Luca going backwards, having to like jump in the air, throw these passes that didn't have a lot of steam on them. Um, what you really have to be able to get is that quick pocket pass to the guy rolling to the rim. They really only got that one time in the first half. So I thought their defense much more. And also, you know, they didn't let like Trey Burke and... Seth Curry just like blow by them for layups again with Zubats out there they had more help that wasn't available it wasn't just iso blow by type of stuff they played Lou Williams less as well in the first half Shamit played more he was good guarding Curry off the ball so I thought it was really a defensive win for the Clippers despite the offensive fireworks and despite of course the resurgence of George well and also you think that it could have been even it could have been even more maybe dominating in the early going but there was a little bit of foul trouble for Paul George and, and they pulled Kawhi just at the very end of the second quarter do that and so Terrence Mann you know he wasn't terrible out there but just a, just more limited as an offensive player and I thought one of the other takeaways from this one from the Clippers perspective is that Montrez Harrell is continuing to look more and more like himself. In the early stages of the series, we thought about how Harrell was not taking advantage of 
the speed advantage that he has when oftentimes his minutes are paired with Boban. And some of that was just Harold not getting right. And I still think that Zubats is the far better fit for when Luka is on the floor. I think that functionally pairing those guys and maybe even going small at center when Zubats is not on the floor is the right tact. But Harold, more effective offensively. The overall line was really strong. 19.7-11 from the field, 11 rebounds as well. But just watching him play, he had a little bit more burst, had more had more energy, and and that gives the Clippers another capable player in the rotation. And while he doesn't play the same position as Patrick Beverly or anything, just having another capable guy in the rotation makes a world of difference. Yeah, absolutely. Beverly, of course, uh, did not play in this one. Presumably, if they had lost, he would have come back for game six. Doc said he's getting close. But I don't know how close close is. I, I do enjoy Doc's uh, when when he's obfuscating. Um, now, it's also worth noting that the Clippers shot 63% from downtown in this game. 22 of 35. But, and, but they yeah. did miss a bunch of free throws. They actually shot almost as well from the three-point line as they did from the free throw line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but George was four of eight. Marcus Morris was four of six. Patrick Patterson even chipped in three of three in the last five minutes of total garbage time at the end. And back to Harold, yes, he's still not as good as Zubats, but he wasn't just a complete traffic cone for Doncic. And again, part of that, I think, was having better defenders on Doncic to where you couldn't really just get ahead of steam, time up Harold that well. Uh, Harold took a charge at one point. He just, it, it wasn't quite as bad as it had been in Boban. You mentioned him. He was negative 19 in 17 minutes. They, I thought they had a nice, I don't know how I'd call it an adjustment, but they really were able to take advantage of Boban's lack of foot speed in pick and roll for the first time. I thought where Lou Williams did this, I think Reggie Jackson might have had one too, where what they do in terms of the coverage on top, Boban is not ever going to get above the free throw line. So what they do is call a, a weak coverage. Just think of it as like, icing like a ball screen we'd be forcing them towards the baseline but you're up top and so you want to just force them to his weak hand that's why they call it weak for lou williams that's actually considered his right hand because he loves to go left so what you're doing there though is it's in theory a pick and roll but harold would just kind of run up there see that they were in this weak coverage where you're kind of just giving the guy a lane to drive anyway wouldn't even set the screen it would just start rolling and so lou williams would just blow by whoever was guarding him because they're giving him a lane that way boban is back at the free throw line but the guy would go so fast that Boban couldn't even get back to the room he just blow right by him for a layup because he was worried about them dropping it off to Harold so they they had a really nice strategy uh and you know I think that Dallas's on ball guys have got to do a better job of actually forcing a screen to be set before you get into that coverage and you're just giving up a drive right away with Boban back there so there, there's I mean that's a, a little nuance um you know, this was such a blowout. I'm not really sure what else there is. They just got to have a better plan, I think, with Doncic getting doubled. And that's a lot of size doubling him, too. I mean, that's a seven-footer with Zubats and, you know, Leonard or George, who are huge also. Hopefully we get Porzingis back for game six, which will be on Thursday. Um, and But I mean, the Clippers aren't going to shoot 63% from three or anything like that. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see We'll see where it goes. And remember, as part of the reason game four was so great is that the Clippers had that, they built out a lead, not in the same way, but they built out a similar lead in game four. And then the Mavericks came back. I I tend to think that, especially without Porzingis, like this, not this margin, but like that the Clippers are, are, are a heavier team and that we, we go more in that direction but hopefully we don't have to see that in game six and or game seven yeah they all the Clippers also bought themselves some time with this victory Beverly can get a little more of a rest with that calf issue which of course is ripe for re-injury and the Mavs aren't going to stop the Clippers yes they can force a few more or, or just get a few more misses from three potentially uh you know we didn't see any of like the double teaming of Leonard particularly because the Clippers were hitting so many shots in this one too and you know Shamit was another guy who was three of three from downtown you know they're really with Shamit and Morris combining for seven out of nine from three double teaming becomes a lot less palatable yeah and you know, I think Shamit playing a little bit more than Lou Williams is something I, I would like to see a, a little bit more of. Now, maybe the Mavs, we didn't see the Mavs try any like small, small pick and rolls or anything like that either to try and take advantage of Shamit. We just didn't even get, the game was non-competitive so quickly that we didn't really get to see anybody try anything that they might have been reserving for the end of the game. But uh, you can't reserve it any longer if you're Rick Carlo. They got to go with the real good stuff right away because, I mean, this is three games in this series 
that they have just been completely out of it early two of which they crazily ended up winning somehow but they can't afford to go down this far again early in game six and hopefully Porzingis will be back I I have a bad feeling about it though just the way he was ruled out and Rick Carlisle saying hey what's the point of lying and saying he's doubtful and uh remember when he had this mysterious knee soreness before yeah and the mri came back clean but he ends up missing 10 games with recall a number of fits and starts where he tries to come back it just it it just doesn't i could be wrong i hope i'm wrong but it just doesn't feel good right now uh with his situation and also they're already down three two so it's going to be hard for them to win the series regardless he he is this is not the season that dallas is going to win championships they're going to be in the mix in 2021 22 once they sign somebody in free agency next summer like that's what they're building towards it is let's go to news we actually have a fair amount of build-up sort of the combination of playoffs and then other things setting the table and where i want to start is with the league-wide news that we we set the table for this a couple days ago but that the league and the players association have agreed to push back the 60-day window which preserves the right uh to for either side to terminate the cba like basically the in in light of the COVID 19 and everything like that and really what this is is it's just kind of keeping things moving on in terms of negotiating and the point that i brought up previously is that one of the challenges in terms of timing here is that the league there's this possibility of pushing back the draft and pushing back free agency is that in all likelihood the cap number for the 2020 slash 21 season is not going to be set by looking at revenue numbers for the just completed season and looking forward instead it's going to be the subject of negotiation that is that is allowed pretty much anytime but they just default to the revenues but this is a non-representative time and there are also motivations to not drop it as hard because remember that one of the other effects of let's say, let's say theoretically they didn't blow up the CBA either side and they just used revenue, then that could potentially lead to a shortfall, which would then lead to a spike in the summer of 2021, which would actually be pretty fun for us, but it's not the type of thing that everybody wants. So I think what's happening is they're going to, they need to square all this stuff away and that's going to happen probably in the next two months or so. And then we will get not only a timing of everything else, but also potentially settling the draft in agency dates within that window that's my hope yeah a couple things to add on that number one you alluded to this mechanism and we talked about this a lot in the early days of the pandemic but basically what would happen is for this year compared to what revenues are the players are going to make a ton more money than would be expected and then but probably this year's revenues were not drop nearly as much as next year's are going to if there are going to be no fans so some more clarity on that as well you know jared weiss wrote a nice piece about some of the testing technology that hopefully is going to start coming down the pipeline for events you know where you can get really quick results before you go to into an event basically you know in the next two or three months that might make it more possible to have fans so that's something that's another piece of information that they need but what you would see happening is because there's a revenue shortfall this year you could see a huge reduction in the cap and also the tax which would be the bigger the biggest problem the cap going down wouldn't be the end of the world that would really probably only affect about five teams or so that are planning on having cap space this year but the tax going down if you have three quarters of the teams in the luxury tax then you have everybody just paying out all this money to the league like that would be a disaster for the teams it'd be a disaster you'd see players getting sold off left and right it would be big time problems nobody would be able to get any kind of a free agent contract at all this offseason even good players so that would be a big problem if you saw some you know like 20 percent reduction or something like that in the cap for this year and then if there weren't fans for next year then you'd see another big reduction so systematically they want to keep it it seems like around 109 but to do that and not have the owners take a total bath what they need to do is increase the escrow percentage which is basically that's only 10 percent right now so generally the most the owners can recoup if there's a revenue shortfall in a given year is 10 percent. they're going to want to bump that up we've talked about that number has been bandied about perhaps 20 percent. i think maybe even needs to be higher so that you actually can split the revenue shortfall equally preserve that 50 50 or so distribution and not have any crazy penalties that are really going to mess up the league or punish certain franchises that never could have planned for this it's in everybody's best interest to come to an agreement here having this deadline of october 15th when the draft is now scheduled for october 16th that really would indicate to me that the draft has to get pushed back um in particular because this year the draft is very close to free agency it's supposed to be only a two-day window but generally 
trades are made around the draft that are going to go into the next league year and teams need to know what the finances are going to look like before you can go into the draft which would normally be a transaction period so that's the those are all the reasons why everything is probably going to get pushed back now Woj also reported that there are discussions on starting dates for next season ranging from December to March there's still a consensus hope the season can begin sometime in late December which presumably would mean Christmas or January but not necessarily and surely they will look to move that back if it appears that you know whether through a vaccine or testing technology that comes online or whatever there's a greater chance of having fans in arenas as of march as opposed to as of january or even if they might realistically have them as of may and then you can at least get half of the year as opposed to none of the year so uh that's all and they still have to get the audits of how bad the revenue losses are this season so that's why all this is happening hopefully that's not too redundant with what's uh, been talked about before we're starting to also get award results and defensive player of the year was awarded on tuesday to the person we both picked Giannis antetokounmpo he got 75 of 100 first place votes anthony davis finished second rudy gobert finished third my biggest point of frustration with the voters was brooke lopez being exceedingly undervalued he only had four third place votes that's it so he was well below a lot of other people in the voting incidentally technically because of the way points are given out behind Andre Drummond because somebody gave Drummond a first place vote and the same person gave Hassan Whiteside a second place vote that I have thoughts but I I think that it's unfortunate that Lopez's contributions I don't know if there are some people who think oh you can't have two great defenders on the same team but watch the Bucks I mean both of them are intensely important to what they do and Anthony Davis being second I don't I, I, I had Gobert over him as well but I'm and saying that he was robbed of winning is is ludicrous to me. I don't think that the argument for him over Giannis holds any water. But they got the right winner, yeah. and that's what matters most. Yeah, I mean there just is no statistical argument for anyone other than Giannis, in my opinion here. And this Bucks defense was the best defense in at least five years statistically, and Giannis was the guy who made that happen the most. And I think did we both have Giannis one, Gobert two, Lopez three? Is that was that what we both had? That's what I had. I believe so there's a chance i had lopez too but i think i had gobert too it's been the coach of the year also came down this a couple days ago nick nurse was awarded that and i'm glad that that happened that's also who we had first uh my second was mike busenholzer and brad stevens was number three for me although of course there were very many deserving candidates uh, again this year that we talked about on that awards pod that i reshared back in july so if you want to go back and check that out of what our reasoning was on some of these as we talk about them that's uh, that's there for you but what was your top three? I had Nurse 1, Budenholzer 2, and Mike D'Antoni 3 because of the overhaul that he did in season on their roster uh, uh, with, with, with Russell Westbrook. Oh, yeah, and I, I remember, I remember that debate now. That was... Uh, <laughs> that was uh, Some more times? Yeah, that was like six months ago that we talked about that. That's crazy. Uh, in any event, so what were the actual... I know Nurse won it, but what were the actual results after him? N- Nurse was first. Budenholzer was second. Nurse got 90 of 100 first place votes, so it was an absolute blowout. Budenholzer are second billy donovan third spo fourth vogel fifth and donovan's case isn't terrible but i i think that was more an example of the kind of the sam mitchell style of coach of the year which is like the team that exceeded expectations but part of why oklahoma city exceeded expectations they had a good roster was that we thought that if they were any worse that they would blow it apart and they didn't do any of that in season they kept gallinari and everything else and so you know Donovan, not a terrible coach, but I mean, I, I think that him being third was it, it just it wasn't a big deal. But I was was Brad Stevens not top five? Brad Stevens was seventh, I think. What the hell, man? That's just like he got the to get the number four defense, top five in offensive defense with that team. I I, just, I fully agree. Yeah, the the he uh you know it's Stevens and of course Billy Donovan won the who's the most old school coach who doesn't actually challenge any of what we perceive the tenets of coaching to be and was potentially going to get fired but no he is a good coach and we need to support him award that the nba coaches vote on um and you know i'm sorry billy donovan is nowhere near as good a coach as nick nurse he didn't do as good a job as nick nurse this year and nurse getting it for the media too i think was also somewhat retroactive for his performance last year where he, he obviously proved himself in the playoffs and with the number of injuries that Toronto had this year, 
pretty incredible performance by him um we still haven't heard anything definitive it sounds like on kyle lowry's ankle sprain and we're gonna hold off actually on doing our east series previews until tomorrow hopefully milwaukee will win and we can talk about both of those two series in the east tomorrow um and maybe we'll get a little bit more clarity on the injury situation we could yes he did he did not practice on tuesdays being listed as day-to-day we could Lowry. we could stay with injured point guards and go to russell westbrook if the it is unsurprisingly d'antoni says it's the medical staff's decision it's close uh, and he says they'll make a good call and do the same but we'll just have to see i mean i i think that it's quad injuries somebody asked about this on the nba cast like quad injuries are tricky you don't want to don't want to rush him back and it is unfortunate for the rockets that they couldn't take care of business in was that game four i'm all my games are getting all garbled yes yeah. yes a 2-2 series yeah. means that the most yeah. recent game was game, game four. four um because then if they had been up 3-1 then it would have been pretty clear where where the rockets they wouldn't have had any pressure though you do lean on the medical staff um yeah my quick prediction on this is i don't think he's gonna play it just seems like particularly in a playoff series that i think they're just kind of trying to give them a oklahoma city a little something different to prepare for i mean uh, d'antoni does say he's not going to rule anything out or anything in we'll see but i i think houston still thinks they're the better team in this series and if they do go down three two hopefully they can get westbrook back but uh it's just kind of the feeling to me it's coming back from an injury like that you know we haven't had any reports of him going through a full practice so i'm uh it, it just doesn't seem like guys return this quickly from these type of injuries from kind of just being straight up out and not practicing that's just my feeling we'll see um they they could obviously be obfuscating that quite a bit Continuing on the injured point guard front, uh, Rondo is still banged up and uh, per Frank Vogel, unlikely to play in game five. They don't, I don't think they need him to win this series. He's for, officially listed as doubtful. And while Anthony Davis is dealing with back spasms, he should be good to go for game five on Wednesday as well. Yeah, and part of why they don't need to rush anyone back is that Damian Lillard, for the second time in this series, suffered a significant injury when they are down by like 25, 30 points in the second half. We didn't mention it yesterday because we actually just started recording once that was a 30-point game, and, and it hadn't happened yet when we had started. But uh, he has a knee sprain. He had to get an MRI, which supposedly was inconclusive. But uh, Chris Haynes reported that he can't fully extend his knee, and even if Portland were to win, which they're not going to in Game 5, that he would not be returning in time so this is the first time i could ever remember lillard suffering like this significant of a, a lower body injury to to his knee uh zach collins had to have surgery on his ankle this is yet another big surgery for him he will be extension eligible we'll see whether he's actually someone that they can count on next year i think what makes the most sense for them would be ha- having him be their backup center and you know maybe you can start gary trent and trevor ariza who presumably they're going to guarantee for next year and maybe have Carmelo come off the bench as a reserve for that would make the most sense we'll see whether that happens or not and you know then they don't have to worry about re-signing Hassan Whiteside but if Collins isn't healthy then they may have to go back and do that and they will have full bird rights on the aforementioned Whiteside a couple of other kind of like carousel related piece of news there was a, a report in, inside uh, Shamstrania's inside pass that basically the Greg Popovich is the dream candidate for the Brooklyn Nets. That isn't saying anything about like that he's interested or or anything. But Popovich has extensive connections to the Nets, especially with Marks running the front office. Marks used to be in San Antonio, and there are a lot of other a lot of other ones. So it's kind of the idea of like they'll reach out, and he he would be a, a, a an interesting coach for Durant and Kyrie Irving has yeah let let me comment on that for a second here sure before you transition it was reported that pop signed a three-year deal last offseason i think it was mark stein who reported that off the top of my head and so that means that compensation would be required to the spurs generally it's been a first round pick the last coach to have that happen i think was doc rivers in the 2013 offseason the way that works is basically you trade them a pick not to actually trade the coach on his contract, but basically just to let him out of the contract. And then he is free to sign a contract with you. And then generally you are prohibited for a certain amount of time for making another trade with that team because there is a perception that that could be part of the deal for the coach and you're not allowed to to do it that way remember there's talk kevin garnett could go to the clippers and they're like no you can't trade him there from boston and he ended of course going going to the nets but the thought of pop in brooklyn i certainly think it has a higher upside than someone like ty Lue because pop is one of the greatest coaches of all time perhaps the greatest coach of all time you know i don't know how much 
his style uh he he has often said that we need players who are over themselves i do not believe that that would describe some members of the nets roster and ty Lue is the other guy who's been talked about there and there's a a piece by joe varden today talking about how he's going to have like his choice of four jobs and you know joe covered ty so it's obviously going to be favorable to him as far as looking at that job landscape uh, from his point of view but I actually think that the higher the higher median outcome would come from Ty Lue because he's really the one coach that's never particularly clashed with Kyrie Irving, although Kyrie still wanted to be traded away from him. And, you know, he's just a, a player's coach who empowers his veterans and is not going to hopefully... Uh, he, he's done a really nice job of managing egos. That seems to be his biggest strength where, you know, I'm not sure that is Pop's strength, but obviously if Pop can really get the buy-in and maybe because he's Pop, he would from Kyrie and kd then they might have some upside there but then what is the price you know i mean just one first round pick i i would assume san antonio if pop said hey you know what i'd really like to go and do this given what where they are as a franchise and everything that he's done there you know they would make it work without driving too ridiculous of a bargain but i also just it just doesn't seem like something pop would want it to but it is it would be fast i hope it happens it would be so fascinating uh if that happens i agree it would be it'd be really interesting to see we can jump to minnesota where reporting again out of the athletic that glenn taylor has had extensive talks with former grizzlies minority owner daniel strauss remember daniel strauss was a part of that buy sell provision that we were so fascinated with in memphis with dan para and so he is now out robert Robert para sorry uh daniel strauss um, yes. So Strauss is now out in Memphis and was is talking there. And what should be warming Timberwolves fans' hearts beyond Glenn Taylor potentially selling the team is that <laughs> st- that they've been planning. The Strauss group would intend to keep the Timberwolves in Minnesota and has been exploring what it would take to renovate the Target Center. Yeah. Now uh, Taylor supposedly has been firm in his desire to sell to a group that will keep the team in Minnesota. How binding that commitment would be is a question. They did renovate the Target Center for 145 million in 2017 but that's not really that much you know it's still not a great arena there they extended the lease through 2035 but it's only a 50 million dollar penalty for breaking the lease early uh good job whoever it was with the city who negotiated that one or the state or whatever it is uh because uh john krasinski correctly described it as peanuts in relation to the final purchase price in his piece so uh i imagine the wolves aren't gonna be going anywhere and it does seem like strauss he's already been approved by the nba so there wouldn't be as much red tape there as a since he was a minority owner in memphis and no idea what kind of an owner he would be i think glenn taylor part of why he says he's selling is because he feels good about the management team that they have there now and with ryan saunders as the coach and you know this does seem like in some ways in law school it was the rule against perpetuities where after you die uh it wouldn't necessarily be the death of of taylor but when he doesn't own the team anymore it's kind of you know how much control can you really exert after that once you've sold it essentially but you know there are kind of rules about like okay once you don't own the team anymore you keep the the whole point is you don't have control over more so you can't exert control so it would be interesting to see how much dan strauss would try to change there also ironic that it's Strauss because Steve Kaplan was supposedly previously the guy who was going to take over, who was also part of that buy sell provision in Memphis, but he couldn't get out of Memphis because he just couldn't get a good enough deal. And that buy sell provision was so weird. So that deal got scuttled. And now he's Taylor's going back down the well with another guy who used to be a co-owner with Steve Kaplan. So I guess he really likes looking South for, for these, <laughs> for, for these co-owners. Then we also got another interesting piece of reporting from Shamstranya about what has been very confusing to me, which is Joe Dumar's place within the King's hierarchy, because it, it felt like it, there was some reporting that Dumar's was basically that he was going to be installed above Vlade Divac, but now it appears that what his role is going to be is choosing, having an integral role in choosing the next general manager who will not report to Dumar's, who will report directly to Vivek Ramadive. Yes, although Sham and Sam Amick in this co-wrote piece did say that the nature of Dumar's position with the Kings after the GM is selected remains unclear. That's ominous. Which, yeah, it is, particularly since Dumar's kind of did the owner sidle and that's what led to the departure of Vlade Divac. Uh, the Kings are also, of course, retaining uh, Mike Forty of Sportsology 
to uh, do the national search. And I'm no doubt they'll be paying him six figures uh, for that. Uh, but there's no timeline. It's quite possible that Dumars and Ken Cantonella could be leading things when it comes to the draft free agency, although pushing that back may give them a little bit more time. And and we know uh, and we know that a 40 a 40 led search has done that before because that's what happened with Tommy yes. Shepard. Yeah, exactly. And so Dumars, according to this report, has no interest in being the long-term head of basketball operations. He will not be a candidate in the search, but he's going to be interviewing candidates and be a pivotal part of the process. So yeah, this is this is this will shock you, Danny. But something involving the Kings and Vivek Ranadive and all of these other minority owners who are constantly jockeying for position and trying to get their guys in there. Uh, it's uh, it's not very clean. And speaking of not very clean, well, it was cl- it's clean from Scott Perry's perspective. It looks like he potentially could have some momentum that's also included in the reporting from Shrania and Amic with the connection that he has with the organization. Remember, he was under Vlade Divac when they drafted De'Aaron Fox, also when they signed a bunch of unbelievable, terrible contracts, but he got out of Dodge before everybody else other than us realized that those contracts were terrible. Goes to the Knicks, is involved, but again, not the lead decision maker as they signed a bunch of terrible contracts, though thankfully those were shorter. And um, and so Perry has, you know, he he left popular and that's interesting. And so potentially that could he could be an option there. Um, he's currently under Leon Rose, he Leon Rose kept him on there after after Mills went out in in New York. So we'll see. Yeah, but I think he only has like a year left on his contract. Yeah, they gave so. they basically picked. I think it was like functionally like they picked up an option or gave him a one year extension, which I criticized at the Athletic earlier when they when they made that decision because it's the idea that you don't want people GMing for their job. And while it's complicated with Leon Rose and, and Perry there, that that is a that is a concern that I've had about the Knicks. And they just hired Tib though, so we'll see. Yeah, in Philly after Josh Harris was kind enough to share a statement on the team and the firing of Brett Brown that he wrote on the notes app on his phone with the media uh they did put Alton Brand in front of the media today. He had some interesting comments. Number one is that uh, he said he's not looking to trade Simmons or Embiid. He also said, and this is also something that Jeroen Weitzman and Zach Lowe discussed on their pod today, that there really was this collaborative process and there's all these minority owners who have their hands in the pie as well towards decision making. But uh, Brand said today, we feel like the collaboration days didn't work so well. Though, And Zach and Jeroen talked about how Brand seems to have consolidated some Power recently, particularly with the departure of Brown. Brand also said, we're strong in the strategic and analytic standpoint. We need to get some more basketball minds in here, but all options are open. Remember, they did lose Mark Eversley to the Bulls recently as well. And I guess my only reaction to that is... Part of why this is so disappointing is because they squandered all these assets around Embiid and Simmons. We talked about that yesterday. But the thought was they had all these incredible assets to build a team around those guys. But if you just look at those two guys as a core, you know, Embiid, considering his injury and conditioning issues, you know, I I think if we did, he was, I don't think he was in our top 10 players this year. He's like 11th or 12th for me. Simmons would probably be in like the 20 to 25 range for me. If you were ranking all the players in the NBA, I know I'm lower on him than some. Uh, but you know, particularly when you consider his fit issues and the fact that Embiid is the center and all the issues that you have just building a championship level of team with your center as a best player in today's day and age. So you know, if they're going to be winning around 50 games a year, like that's about what you'd expect from a core of those two guys, right? It's really, and yeah, the front office blew it by not putting an unbelievable core on those guys with the assets that were available to have both of those guys on rookie contracts and all the draft picks going forward uh, that they had amassed and to not really have any other foundational pieces around them is a big disappointment but those two guys aren't like that good just on their own to me to where you should expect them to be in championship contention without a lot more around them and obviously that was not present this year it was the present this year and it's also hard even without their salary constraints to figure out exactly who those players are and to do it now there's certain players that fit in well but you need a you need a lot of things you need somebody who can run a half court offense you ideally you need floor spacing from every other spot and some people that can help with the defensive identity incidentally all the things i just mentioned other than maybe defensive identity aren't exactly what they prioritized in building around Simmons and Embiid either basically at any point since Sam Hankey gave up control gave up control of the Sixers all right that'll do it for today dunk sign up listen to that pod with Slater we'll talk to y'all next time